Well, I invite you to remain standing for prayer before we open God's word. Let me mention, I failed earlier to mention that Pastor Everett and Ann and Trent are in Florida. They're in uh, worship services today with Stephen and Kirsten McKenzie, where Stephen pastors a church near Orlando. They've been at a missions conference down there at the Pioneers Missions Headquarters. And in their vacationing just a couple days, we'll make an exception and pray for them, even though they're in Florida in the wintertime and we're not. Uh, Pastor Mark is uh, returning tomorrow with a team from Appalachian Bible College where he's been ministering and on a survey trip in Utah, uh, fact-finding, benefiting from meeting with pastors and church planters in uh, Utah uh, there and important ministries that are going on there. Um, Also, not long ago, we had a family named the Mansfields who were with us, and uh, they're heading out in missions uh, to Southeast Asia, and today they are being commissioned at the church in Martinsburg, and I wanted to remember them in prayer as well. Uh, What an incredible mission field they're heading out to. Let's bow in prayer. And so, Father, we do thank you for the cross. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who substituted into our place and that the blood of Christ can cleanse us from all sin. What a, what a beautiful thing the cross really is, is a place of new beginnings, a place of the forgiveness of sin, a place where we recognize how much you loved us and sent your son to be the savior of the world. We thank you for our Bibles as we study together today. We ask that through your Holy Spirit, you will take your word and convict us and grow us and challenge us. We do thank you for Pastor Everett and Ann and Trent uh, for his leadership and missions. We trust, Lord, that they would have a great time together with the McKenzies today. Give them a refreshing couple days before they return on Wednesday. We think of Pastor Mark and Jonathan Marceau, Adam Johnson, uh, Zelia Wood, and others who are part of the Appalachian Bible College team in Utah. I pray for your blessing on them as they return Monday. Uh, We think of... uh, um, Josiah, uh, Jeremiah Johnson, Jeremiah Johnson, the Johnson boy who's with uh, the Bloom boy who is in South Africa returning tomorrow. And I just pray, Lord, for your blessing on him and the team with Dave Holloway from Appalachian Bible College as well. And now, Lord, as we uh, turn our attention to the word, uh, would you just take your word and make it meaningful to us and um, use this time appropriately, we pray, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, whatever that boy's name, it's not Jeremiah Johnson. <laughs> I always want to say Jeremiah Johnson. Uh, but uh, that's another story for another day. Um, that boy's name is Jeremiah Bloom, right? Hey, where's his mom and dad? Are they in here? <laughs> there they are. Is that boy's name Jeremiah? All right. And his last name is Bloom, and you know it. And... and uh, And he's a fine young man at Appalachian Bible College in the pastoral studies program. And he's part of a camp team that's been in South Africa with my good friend Dave Holloway, who's head of the head of the extension ministries at Appalachian Bible College. I have to begin with a further confession. Um, I've already demonstrated my near incompetence to be your pastor. Um, um, uh, I need to confess that it has been quite a week. Um, I'll not try to explain my my life to you, um, but... Um, uh, due to some sickness and extended just feeling half rotten, some extra speaking engagements that I needed to be a part of uh, this week, as well as admittedly just the, uh, the technicality and the difficulty of Hebrews chapter 2, that though I intended for us to duck down into Hebrews 2 today, um, sometime yesterday afternoon it became evident to me that we would benefit uh, much more from that two weeks from today than we will today. Um, and so I trust that... Um, 
God is sovereign over our preparation. He's sovereign over our calendars. And um, I know that our preaching schedule has been interrupted. We have been launching and been into a, a new series, a study series on the book of Hebrews. And um, then we had um, our Bible lecture series with Dr. Shupi, and then last week our World Missions Weekend, and then an opportunity today to return, and then next week is our men's retreat speaker, Chad Merrill will be with us in the pulpit, and so maybe it's okay for us to just land today thinking about something that's been on my heart um, that is somewhat a response from last weekend and our World Missions Weekend. Um, I had a story going through my mind that I've worried um, is is illustrative of Fellowship Bible Church, perhaps. It's a story that I think first came out through Campus Crusade for Christ. It was a story uh, that is a parable, and it, and it has to do with a fisherman's club. And this fisherman's club was a dynamic group of people who loved to fish. Um, they invested in their fishing equipment. They had great fishing tackle, fishing boats. They even had a clubhouse that they erected for their club meetings, and they would gather for their seminars. They would bring in experts on fishing, fishing saltwater, fishing freshwater, fishing all kinds of different species of fish, what baits were best to use, what time of year to fish, even how to ice fish. Uh, somewhere along the line in the story, a new guy comes in and he's part of the group of the fisherman's club and he's really into it. He enjoys seeing all their equipment. He, he recognizes that they know an awful lot about fishing, more than he knows. Uh, but some weeks into the gathering and their weekly meetings, he, he asks a question and uh, he simply wants to know if we're ever going to fish. And that's kind of the point of the parable is that the fishermen's club meets, they talk about fishing, they know a lot about fishing, they have a lot of equipment designed for fishing, they just, for some reason, never really get around to fishing. I was thinking about us in World Missions, we had a beautiful supper last uh, Saturday evening, we gathered and we said to ourselves, this is a great gathering, and we're enjoying talking about missions, and in fact, we had representative of a number of ministries with us, representatives with us. We had Honduras, we had Utah, we had India, Bedford, Pennsylvania, and camping, uh, Ukraine, Martinsburg. Uh, we had Bethany Christian Services, Adoption Agency. We had the Martinsburg Rescue Mission. We had our dear brothers from Ghana and church planters there. We had Thailand. Ed Weber effectively shared his story that had many layers of application last Sunday morning. We run between six and 700 with kids on Sunday morning. We had about 125 out on Saturday night for our fishermen's club. I mean, our missions meeting. It just concerns me that we be very, very careful that as we have been charged with a great commission from our Lord Jesus to go and make disciples, that it really indeed be part of the culture, part of the DNA of our church that it be more than something we just talk about, but that, that evangelism and missions and soul winning is a reality among us. Uh, would you agree with me that we live in a dark world and that people need the Lord? I thought it would be good for us to just um, follow up on these thoughts in Matthew chapter 9, and I invite you to turn for our text this morning to Matthew chapter 9 as we um, look at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ as a model 
If you want to position your notes uh, as a listening guide, you might find that helpful. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, we have recorded for us uh, a few moments in the life of our Lord Jesus that I think provide for us an excellent outline for ministry and missions. I think the challenge would be well worth our while this morning as we think about Are we really a soul-winning people? Are we really an evangelistic church? Are we really a missions-minded, missions-motivated church? Or do we just like to talk about it and eat food at our meetings? Let's read our text together. It's Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 35. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I want you to know that I'm not trying to beat up our church today. I would include myself as needing to be encouraged, needing to be reminded of the stewardship of opportunity that we have to share Christ with a lost and dying world around us. I don't want to beat us up, but I do want to encourage us and motivate us. I want to acknowledge and recognize that I know that we live in a world that absolutely does not care who Jesus is or what he says or what he thinks. I know that we live in a world that when you whip out your Bible, they couldn't care less. Are you kidding me? The Bible? And so the challenge is great. The darkness is getting dark. It is actually even designed by the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, Satan, that it has even become one of the greatest offenses in our culture to go up to somebody and try to convince them out of their belief system and into a new belief system. Are you kidding me? You don't do that. And that is exactly what missions is. It is exactly what the gospel is. It is designed to confront people with the realities of who Jesus is and their need for a savior. That is not easy. I acknowledge that. Let's look and see what our Lord did. Let's see if we can benefit from his model in ministry. Uh, First of all, I want you to see that Christ does provide here for us in Matthew 9, 35 through 38, a model for missions and ministry. The first thing I want you to see is that his ministry was focused upon people. His ministry was focused upon people. It seems quite obvious, but notice what it says, that Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues. The one thing I want you to recognize is that he was intentional. He was intentional about intersecting with people. If you're like me, you can have days where you try to avoid people. Jesus, it seems, was regularly, intentionally intersecting with people, and he had a plan. He had a plan, and he wanted to confront them with the claims of his heavenly Father, and so he found people wherever he went. Even on occasion when our Lord would go to separate himself for refreshment, for prayer, uh, sometimes early in the morning, sometimes in the evening, he would try to, to get away from the masses. What would they do? They would follow him, and they would come after him, and he was always with people. I want you to think for me, think with me for just a minute about this area of Galilee, Our Lord, you know, walked wherever he went. 
Well, I want you to notice that, that as he went out intentionally throughout the cities and the villages, this is actually an area geographically that was about 40 miles wide and about 70 miles high, long. Okay, about 40 miles wide, 70 miles long. And, and so it's not a huge area. And in three years, you could walk to most of these villages. We have a very reliable account a record of what that area was like through a Jewish historian named Josephus, who was a contemporary of that time. And Josephus wrote uh, that, that Galilee, this area, that the cities, he, Josephus wrote, the cities are numerous and the multitude of villages everywhere. So we know some of the names of them from our Bible geography and others we don't even know about. Josephus said they were everywhere crowded with men owing to the fertility of the soil so that the smallest of them, these villages and cities, contains about 15,000 inhabitants. So there were dozens and dozens and dozens of cities and villages in this region of Galilee that in a three-year period were within walking distance of our Lord. And he didn't just at random go. He had a plan. He covered the territory. He met regularly with people. You know that if you figure it out and Bible students look at that region and based on some of the records like biblical record as well as extra biblical records like Josephus, they say that there was at the time of our Lord Jesus in Galilee about 3 million people. So our Lord was around people, he was with people, and he intersected with people. First thing I want you to see about our Lord's strategy is that he got with people. He was intentional about it. Secondly, I want you to see that in his ministry that was focused on people, that he was expositional, expositional. We talk about our ministry from the pulpit here being expositional. That is, we explain the word of God. You know, you need to know that in these villages, in these communities in Galilee, of these 10 to 15,000 people communities, it is only required to have 10 Jewish men there to have a synagogue. All of these communities had synagogues. There would be a high pole that they would put up that would mark. So when you came in from the area, you could spot the pole in the community. You knew that that's where the synagogue was. And there, especially on the Sabbath, and Sabbath Saturday, and on other days, they would meet. And our Lord had a practice, we know from the New Testament, in the gospel record, we know that our Lord would make his way to the synagogue. And there, what would they do? They would open up the scrolls, and they would study Moses and the prophets. He had a text-based ministry. He wasn't just always telling stories. Now, our Lord was a master storyteller, wasn't he? And in fact, his stories have become our gospel. And so he would tell stories. We call them parables, earthly stories with heavenly meaning, practical everyday things that had a spiritual punch to them. But our Lord would, was known to sit down in the synagogues, unroll the scrolls, and expound the scripture. In fact, he even would explain how he himself was being talked about, and that drove the Pharisees crazy. I mean, can you imagine this rabbi, this teacher comes walking into town, he takes the scroll, opens to Isaiah, <laughs> reads the scripture, rolls it up, and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your presence right here. <laughs> yeah, right. And absolutely it was. What a remarkable time to be alive. The Lord Jesus right there. So he had a text-based approach. 
I want us to pause for a few minutes in our message and kind of camp on this idea here of a text-based evangelism. How do you lead people to Christ? How do you get somebody to pay attention? It's not easy. You have to be intentional. You have to be with people. You need to build some relationship. Uh, it's, not, it's not easy. I, but I want you to know we have to know the word of God. I wonder how many of us know, for example, what we would call the Romans road, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible says. I didn't make it up. You didn't make it up. God says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then we go to Romans 6.23, and the wages of that sin, what you earn for your sinfulness is death. You have sinned and you're earning death for your sin. You've got a problem, pal. A big problem. But then there's that three-letter word, but, in there. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God. Can you walk someone down the Romans road? Can you take a napkin in a restaurant at a table? Do you even carry a New Testament? Can you open the word and show them Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 8.1, Romans 10.9 and 10, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, John 3.16, John 3, 17. Can you show them in the word of God their need for Christ? You see, that is what gives credibility to our message. It's the word of God that we have in our hands here. You don't have to make it up. You've just got to be equipped and ready to roll. Now, let's take a minute and let's turn to Romans chapter 10. And let me show you what Paul says about the importance of a text-based ministry about using the word of God and the authority and the power of the word of God. You see, when we use the Bible, when we use scripture, that is the authority, not me, not my story, okay? Now, we can use effectively our own testimony of how we came to put our faith and trust in Christ and how Jesus changed our lives. But in our culture today, they'll say, yeah, that's good for you, but that doesn't count for me. I don't need that. You, that's good for you. Good for you. I like your story. It's a great story. That's good for you. You see, so my job, I cannot get somebody to believe or understand. I can only confront them with the truths of the word of God. That's my responsibility. Then the spirit of God takes the word of God and opens up the eyes and the mind of a person. It might not happen overnight. But our problem is, we don't share the word. There it is. The Romans 10, 9 and 10. Notice what it says. Actually, let's back up to verse 9 because this reminds us of how to be saved, how to know that our sin is forgiven. Paul said in Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There it is. You have to admit that you're a sinner that Jesus is the Lord, that God raised him from the dead, and then you can be saved. If you don't do that, you're not saved. You are lost in your sin until you acknowledge that Jesus Christ alone took your sin to the cross, and there the blood of Christ covered you, cleansed you, washed you free of all of the guilt of your sinfulness. You believe that he was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and you are willing to confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord, then you are saved. That's a transformative moment in your life. Let's read on what he says here. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified. That's your core value system. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, there's the text, there's the text. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. All people everywhere, Ukraine, Honduras, Utah, Bedford, Pennsylvania, Martin, all people everywhere are the same. And it's the same gospel and the same Lord. And then he says in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he goes on to ask some questions. Look at 1014. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? That's missions. Going places that people have never heard about Jesus. It's not that hard to find people in our own neighborhoods who don't know anything about Jesus. And how can they believe on someone in whom they've not heard? No, he continues to ask these questions. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? There's the text. There's text-based ministry. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? There's missions. That's the great commission going As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith, verse 17, comes from hearing. And here's the text again. And hearing from the word of God. Isn't that interesting? At the heart of our evangelism, at at the core of our value system for missions and sharing Christ needs to be the ability to take the word of God and show people their need for Christ. I want to drive this home even further by going to Luke chapter 16. We're talking about Christ as a model for ministry. He's a model for ministry because he was focused upon people. He was intentional when he was with people. And number two, he was expositional and text-based with people. He showed them the word of God. I'm trying to show us and remind us of the importance of the authority of the Bible in our missions, our evangelism in sharing Christ. Luke chapter 16, one of of my... uh, opportunities this week was to speak to our 7th through 12th grade teens in youth group on Wednesday night here at church. And I don't get to do that very often. I really enjoyed being with the young people. And and so I had titled my message that I shared with them from Luke 16, listening in on a conversation from hell. Listening in on a conversation from hell. What do people talk about who are in hell? You see, Jesus told a story in Luke 16 that has part of a conversation with a man and Father Abraham in hell. Some people think this is an actual account. Others think that it was a parable that our Lord told, a story that he told to illustrate a truth. The reason that some believe that it is an actual account is because unlike any other parable in the New Testament, he names the name of a person. There's two characters in this story. It's a simple story to understand. There was a rich man. He was very wealthy. And he had a poor beggar who hung around his house. In fact, let's just read the story. It's easier to read it is than for me to tell it and probably quicker. 
It says in Luke chapter 16 that there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor beggar named Lazarus. There's the name that Jesus used that people think, well, it must have been a real person, Lazarus. Covered with sores, Lazarus desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. In the Jewish mind, that would be going to paradise. The rich man also died and he was buried and he goes to Hades or hell or Sheol, the place of the dead, a a temporary holding place until the final judgment of those who are outside of God. Don't believe in God. It says he was buried and in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So get the scenario here. On earth, a very wealthy man with great resources, dressed very fancily, and he had banquet tables, and under the banquet tables were dogs, and among the dogs was a poor beggar man named Lazarus who had sores all over his body to the degree that some of the relief that he got was to lay under the table and let the dogs lick his sores. He was a wretched, pitiful man. Now, what the story doesn't tell us that you need to understand is that Jesus is speaking to Pharisees who are observing him at this time, and he's trying to drive home a point to them because they are proud and they are arrogant, and they have a core belief that because they are wealthy, it is a sign of God's blessing, and therefore they will have eternal life. That their social status and their wealth in this life is indicative of the blessing of God and the fact that they would go to heaven because they please God. And the fact that the poor beggar under their table is such a rotten, dirty, sore, infested, sinful creature with the dogs, that that is a sign that he must have sinned in such a way that God is rejecting him. The point of the story is that nothing is farther from the truth, that it's the hard attitude that matters And the rich man did nothing to prepare to meet God. He lived in arrogance and affluence. Affluence is not wrong, but he did nothing with that to lay up treasure in heaven. And the poor man simply wanted to eat scraps with dogs. But evidently, Lazarus was a man who had faith in God. So when he dies, angels take him to the presence of God or paradise. Here, they express it as, we call it the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man goes to Hades. He goes to this place of torment. Now we're going somewhere with this, so stay with it. We're on text-based ministry. We're on Jesus modeling for us expositional evangelism, that the word of God has to be at the core of our missions, our evangelism, our soul winning. Let's just read more of the story. The rich man, verse 24, calls out and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. One of the things I was telling the young people about was a buddy of mine from high school who used to wag his head and and swear at me and say that he was going to go to hell and party with all his friends in hell. And I would wag my head back at him and say, no, you're not going to party in hell because I knew this story even when I was 17 years old. And I pointed out to the young people that people in hell long for relief from their anguish. They long for it. They are not partying. And in fact, this guy is so humbled in hell that he wishes that the bony, 
sore-infested hand of that poor, lice-infested beggar who laid with the dogs under his table that the tip of his finger could be put in water and he could put just one drop of water on his tongue and get a second of relief. People in hell are not partying. They are longing for relief that never comes. Now notice what happens. Abraham reminds him that in your lifetime, you had all the good things. You didn't take time to get right with God. Lazarus had many bad things happen to him, but now he's being comforted here. And besides all this, verse 26, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from here to us. People in hell are not partying. They are longing for relief and they are longing for relocation. They wish they could move from where they are to a place that is better. And Abraham points out, it's done, buddy. You cannot change. Not only is he longing for relief, he's longing for relocation. And he goes on. Now, we're going somewhere. We're talking about expositional evangelism, text-based, our Lord, using the word of God, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's a great golf fix, and you cannot come from here to there. He says then, The rich man says, verse 27, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Do you get how humbled he is? The rich man wants a guy that he couldn't have cared less about in this earth, who was with the dogs under his table, probably he kicked him before, and kicked him out or flicked food at him, saw him scramble over and eat it off the floor. And he said, would you have that beggar go to my father's house because I have five brothers and tell him to beg them to repent so that they do not come to this place. People in hell are not partying. They are longing for relief. They are longing for relocation and they are longing for their loved ones to come to the reality that they do not want to be in hell. Now notice the answer. We're getting close to our punchline here. It says, I have five brothers. Let them go that they may warn them. And Abraham, verse 29 says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So so I have no doubt I have no doubt that right now, if I asked you to raise your hand, that most of us would be humiliated and embarrassed. If I asked you to raise your hand, when is the last time that you shared the gospel with an unsaved person? Or you could say, I have, don't do it, because I'm not here to beat you up. And I don't even share the gospel with people as much as I should. A couple weeks ago, I led a guy to Christ in my office. That was a good morning. When's the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? When's the last time you actually led somebody to Christ? And when is the last time you took your Bible and you sat down with somebody and you said, let's talk about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and let's talk about Jesus. That's what he says. Did you get what he said? The rich man says, I have five brothers who need to know they don't want to come here. It's not a party. They need, I need 
tell them, if somebody would come back from the dead and just tell them what it's like here, they would believe him. And Father Abraham says, no, that's not true. You don't understand. They have Moses and the prophets. And if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they will not literally believe if somebody comes back from the dead. Isn't that amazing? Look what he says. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that rings a bell with me. How about you? Somebody rose from the dead. And they still don't believe Jesus. Do you see the authority of the scripture here? Do you see the reliability of the word of God? Do you see how we offload our responsibility for the souls of other people when we present the Bible to them? Here is the living word of God. You need to know, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God's word says. It really doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't really matter what happened in my life. What matters is, is that the word of God says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that the wages of your sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord and that there is now, for, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, praise God. That's what you need to know. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now, we can practice our message. We can use tools like this little booklet that we use a lot around here, and we need to make them more available in the hallway for you. It is simple. It's called, May I Ask You a Question? It has two parts of bad news and two parts of good news. It boils the message of the gospel down into two parts. The bad news is, you're a sinner. The bad news gets worse. It gives you verses. The bad news gets worse. Your sin brings death, but it doesn't stop there. The Bible doesn't. There's good news. The good news is that Christ died in your place for your sin. And the, be- and the good news gets even better than that. You can have everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the, the word of God is right there. And you can go through it with someone. You can hand it to them. You can talk to them about it. You can follow up. But when is the last time we led anybody to Christ? When is the last time we really shared the word with anybody? We had 125 people out for missions. We had a great time. Who cares? Who really cares about anybody in Honduras, Utah, India, Bedford, Ukraine, Martinsburg, Ghana, Thailand, and Shenandoah Junction? I mean, who really cares? So it's easy to talk about it. We know a lot. You know, maybe um, being equipped with the word is one reason why we don't do it is because we're insecure about our understanding of scripture and so we're back in matthew chapter 9 and we are talking about our lord jesus as a model for missions and ministry and we recognize that he went out into all the cities and communities there it was intentional he had a plan he found people it was expositional it was text-based he opened the word of god with people that's what we have to do that's the power that's the authority By the way, do you think, you don't don't think that people party in hell, do you? It's possible that there's people here who think that people party in hell. I just told you what Jesus said. We just listened to a conversation of a man in hell. 
and he's not parting. He's longing for relief. He's longing for relocation. He's longing for someone to go and warn his brothers. Don't mess around with Jesus, people. Don't mess around with the gospel. Well, let's continue to look at Christ as our model. He was intentional. He was expositional. I want you to realize that he was confrontational. Look at verse 35, verse C. It's kind of embedded in the word proclaiming the gospel. Okay, so we haven't gotten very far in our short text here yet. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. He was with people. He was intentional. He had a plan. He was teaching in their synagogues. He used the word of God and he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel of the kingdom? What did our Lord proclaim when he proclaimed the gospel? The word gospel means good news. There's good news, all right? I wrote the verse down in that he's confrontational in that the embedded in the gospel is the reality that there is a call to repent. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, this is, an, this is where Matthew records the startup of our Lord's public ministry. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Now we have a sense of confrontation. I referenced earlier that in our world today, one of the most politically incorrect things you can do is go up to somebody and tell them that they need to change their belief system. It's like, who do you think you are? Well, as a matter of fact, I am a missionary. I represent Jesus. Who cares? What is it about the gospel of Jesus Christ that is confrontational. It's embedded in that word, repent. The idea of repent means that I have to admit that I'm doing something wrong. I have to admit that I am not okay. I have to admit that I'm not a good boy or girl. I have to admit that I have a major problem in that I have offended a holy God. And in fact, it's in my DNA. It's who I am. I am an offense to God. And until Jesus Christ comes along and that good news of the gospel goes in my ears and embeds in my brain and my eyes open and I realize in humility that I admit that I'm a sinner, I don't repent of anything. So I thought it would be good. Let's just remind ourselves a little bit. Why is this gospel so confrontational? What is it about repentance that brings out confrontation in people? Why is it that when you begin to talk about Jesus to people, they often don't want to hear it. First of all, it's because it exposes the condition of our hearts. It exposes our sinful hearts and our sinful behavior. You see, you cannot repent from something until you recognize that you're wrong. To repent means to turn away. I have been living a certain way, going down a road a certain way, and now I'm confronted with a reality that I am wrong. In fact, I'm in deep trouble. I am in high weeds. I have offended a holy God, and I am sorry for that, and I repent of that, and I turn, and I begin to go a new direction. Now, you can plow through if you want to, but you're going to face the consequences of sin, and sin always brings death. It's a law of the universe. You can't avoid it. Only Jesus interrupts that law for us. And so when you begin to share Christ with people, they often do not want to hear about it because it exposes their sinful behavior. And people are, are you kidding me? We live in a culture saturated with sin. 
I mean, there's more people living together than are married. All kinds of stuff, drunkenness, drug abuse, all kinds of things. People entertaining themselves with sin all the time. It's just everywhere. That's not even dealing with the theological issue that I am born a sinner. That's just the sin that people do. It's not the sin that people be. People don't want to hear it. And it exposes them. And when you start talking about Jesus, man, it's like... Secondly, it's because the gospel of Jesus Christ is an exclusive gospel. So people don't like this. This again... I'm telling you, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this universe, the God of this world, Hebrews chapter 2, is going to remind us that that's only temporary. The God of this world has so saturated the mindset, especially of a younger generation now, that, that you are tolerated along almost any line of thought, you can believe the most bizarre things, even that that in 12 years the world's going to die from warming or something. You can believe all kinds of just insane things. And, And people sit around and go, oh, that's so interesting. Oh, oh, you're so thoughtful. No, you're stupid. Where did you come up with that stuff? You're dumber than a box of rocks. Well, you can say anything you want to say, and everybody thinks you've got a platform. Okay, that's good, that's good, that's good. Until you say this. The only way that you can avoid hell and the only way that you can have everlasting life is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's it. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes unto the Father but by me. Satan has so orchestrated the mainstream thought of the day that the one absolute is that there's no absolutes. And once you proclaim an absolute like this that is so exclusive, you are marginalized, you are laughed out of the room. It's hard. It's not easy. Thirdly, because this gospel expects change. See, you can talk about change all you want, but you know what? Your language, your behavior, your hateful attitude, your, your tempers, the vitriol, the viciousness with which you live. You can say you follow Jesus, but when you encounter Christ, change is expected. You cannot keep living the way you're living. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anybody be in Christ, he's a new creation. It's a new creation. Galatians 2.20 says, Therefore I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Did you get that? And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. The life that I now live. It's a new life. People don't want to hear that. I don't need a new life. There's not an exclusive gospel. By the way, Matthew 7, 13 to 14, we didn't take time to go there. Might have been quicker for us to look it up than for me to talk, talk, talk. That's the verse where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and few there be that find it. I want to talk to the young people in the room here, especially because we hate being different than other people. 
Some of you young girls, I hope not the boys, but some of you young girls have even been fighting with your mom about ripping up your jeans. You fight about it. Why? Because you want to be like everybody else. It's the style. It's what we do. I mean, that's just a simple example culturally. It's probably a nonsense example. But as young people, you hate to be different. You hate to look different. You want to blend in. And Jesus says, when you come to me, you're going to end up being different. It's going to be different. And it's a narrow gate and a narrow road. And it says, few there be that find it. Few there be that find it. Listen, young people, following Jesus isn't easy. But it's right. And he alone has the words of eternal life. And like Peter said, where else would I go? I got nowhere else to go. But you have to be ready in our world to kind of be a little different because it's, uh, it exposes our hearts and it's exclusive. It creates change. Well, let's move on quickly. It's almost time to go to IHOP here. Not only was Jesus intentional, he had a plan. He was expositional, he was text-based. His message was confrontational. This gospel of the kingdom was calling for people to repent. That's confrontational. But it says he went about at the end of verse 35, healing every disease and every affliction. Every disease and every affliction. Now, I fully admit that we can't do what Jesus did. That was three years that was profound and awesome when Jesus could walk up to somebody who had the end of their hand eaten off with leprosy and he could put a hand back on. Or he could take blind eyes. He could take deaf ears. He could take someone paralyzed from the waist down or the neck down and he could... But I think there's a principle here that when you minister to people at their point of need, you sometimes open the door for the gospel. When you minister to people at their point of need... You sometimes have a door open for the gospel. You know, I've noticed something about my neighbors. They never come to my property. My neighbors have never been to my property. Now, I can do a better job probably of inviting them, maybe having some steaks on the grill and some baked potatoes and roasted vegetables. What else do we want? Rolls? And saying, hey, how about 7 o'clock Friday night? Come on, my deck. I might not have done a good enough job with that, but I've noticed, I've noticed that all of my neighbors in the area, I go to their yard all the time. The other day when it snowed, I came down and got the church tractor. I went around and plowed everybody out. Got to talk to my neighbors a little bit. If they don't come plow me out, I go plow them out. Buddy plows me out. But... Do your neighbors come to your property? Do you go to their property? You have a deck? You've got a tool for evangelism, right? You've got to find a practical way to reach out to people. Our Lord was practical. He, he ministered to people at the point of their need, a point of where they had an openness. I don't know what that looks like for us. As we move on, I want you to see in verse 36 that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There's Jesus 
three million people around him, riding into a community. He can see the masses of people, and he, he thought of them as being helpless and harassed, needing a shepherd. I want us to understand that our Lord models for us that his ministry was focused on people, and his ministry was fueled by pity. It was fueled by pity. In fact, this is characteristic of Christ. Letter A, this is characteristic of Christ. If you look up Matthew 14, 14, 15, 32, the story in 20, 29 through 34, not 14, 29 to 34 there, it'll say this. It'll say, when he saw the people, he had compassion on them. Repeatedly, you see this. He saw the people, and they had, he had compassion on them. And I don't know if you have a capacity that I have. I have a great capacity to not be compassionate. In fact, I have a great capacity to be judgmental and to even think that's what they deserve. I, I can do this to people I don't even know. You know, you profile, I profile. That's absolutely politically incorrect. I've shared this before. You know, you're standing in line at Walmart. There's some people up ahead of you and their carrying's on and the way they handle themselves and the things that they've done to themselves and sometimes even maybe the way they smell, whatever. I have a great capacity to stand in line and think about why these people are a great inconvenience to the airspace that I'm in right now. I don't think Jesus ever did that. I've asked God to change my heart and he's been doing it over the course of several years. And I will tell you, not boasting at all, but I'll tell you reality is that I can stand in Walmart line now and I have to turn my head away from studying people or I would start to weep because I can see what sin is doing to them, has done to them. It's grinding them up and spitting them out and they don't even know it. And I think to myself, God, would you save their soul? That's Jesus. They're helpless. They're harassed. They need a shepherd. They need leadership in their life. They need the gospel. That's the characteristic of Christ to be compassion-based in his ministry. <clears throat> it's the very character of God, 1 John 4. He, we love because he first loved us. It's the challenge for us. Mark chapter 2 is a story we were going to go to. We're along out of time. That's the story where the four guys had their buddy on a mat, and, and he was a paraplegic. He was paralyzed. And they have him on a mat, and they're going to take him to Jesus, and the house is packed out. They can't get to Jesus. So do they what? They go home? Sorry, pal, you can't get Jesus today. No, they figure out a way to get up on the roof, and they tear the roof apart, and they lower the guy down in front of Jesus. It's pretty cool what happens. Jesus looks at the guy as soon as he's being lowered in front of him. The Pharisees, again, are watching. <laughs> and, and Jesus says, he, he looks up and he sees their faith, the faith of the friends, including the faith of the man on the mat. He says, buddy, your faith has saved you. Your sin is forgiven. The Pharisees all go, what? Who do you think you are that you can forgive sins? Well, as a matter of fact, I spoke the worlds into existence. As a matter of fact, I'm the second member of the Godhead in the flesh. And as a matter of fact, to show you that I do have the authority to forgive sins, he says to the guy, buddy, take up your mat and walk. And the guy's instantly restored to full strength. He rolls up the mat and he walks out of the room. He goes home to mom and the kids. 
and they have the greatest day they ever had in their life, the day dad came home whole. So we can't do that physically, but spiritually, some of you have days like that that you can talk about in the past, the day you met Jesus and the day Jesus fixed you and you went home to Ma and the kids and it was the greatest day of your life. Jesus models for us this compassion-based drive for ministry. Thirdly and finally, and really we should have spent more time on this and we will in the future, his ministry was facilitated by prayer. His ministry was facilitated by prayer. These helpless, harassed sheep without a shepherd, he goes on to say, then to his disciples, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. (coughs) Excuse me. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The ESV says, pray earnestly earnestly. The NIV says to ask him. The NAS says to beseech him, beg. A few minutes ago, I said, we could ask you to raise your hand and say, when's the last time you ever shared Christ with somebody? When's the last time you actually led somebody to Christ? We could even raise our hands and don't do it and ask this question. Raise your hand if you have ever begged God to send forth laborers into the harvest. We're not even praying the prayer, are we? We're not even focused enough on all of the points on the globe. And he says, look, they're white. The fields are white. People need to go pray. Isn't it interesting? He didn't tell them to go. He said, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth. I take it that God is fully capable of sending people and getting them where he wants them to go. Our job is to pray. I guess when we pray, we can begin to line up with the will of God. And the next thing you know, you better watch your prayers. You might be going. Hmm. He says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. I was thinking, I know a little bit about harvest. Working on a farm when I was a kid and growing up in southern Michigan, great big green bean fields, for example, great big strawberry fields. Let's just think about the harvest for a minute here. You know, the huge green bean fields, they bring a combine in, they get one picking, and then they come right behind a disc and plant the next growth of green beans, and they got big tractor trailers, and they're they're shoving off the tractor trailers off to the Jolly Green Giant cannery because they've got about eight hours to get there before everybody else, and they can get $39 a bushel for their green beans, and four hours later, it's going to be $7 a bushel. The market will be flooded. It's harvest time. What do we know about harvest? Well, they have their lights on across that field all night long. They never come in. You see mom take a pickup truck and take a sandwich to him in the combine because he's working. It's harvest time. When it's harvest time, you work. When it's harvest time, it's a time of great need. Everybody's all on hands on deck. Everybody's working together. The need is greater in harvest than any other time. And it's a brief window of time. We've only got a short time to harvest. The rain and the cold are coming. Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest. It's time to work hard. It's time for all hands on deck. It's a short window of time. I wonder, are we a fisherman's club here? Are we all in? Is missions evangelism and soul winning part of our DNA? Is it part of our culture? Is it who we are? Or do we just have a little 
fisherman's club going. Some of us need to grow more so that we can handle the word. Others, we've just gotten lazy. We've gotten less than intentional about it. Speaking of prayer, our missions committee made beautiful bookmarks. They're in the wall, unless they on the wall back there, unless they've all been taken from the other services. We'll get more. Watch for them next time you come. Here's Eric and Holly Johnson in the Dominican Republic. Here's Mike and Cheryl Gale in Togo, Africa. Stephen Donna Niles in France. Nate and Don Donham in Alberta. I just grabbed them as I walked by. I didn't have any plan. Why wouldn't we all have our bookmarks out where we can pray? I was at a memorial service of one of the leaders at Independent Bible Church for Friday morning. One of the things they talked about him, he always had a pocket full of tracts and he was giving tracts to people all the time. And he prayed for missionaries and they knew that he prayed because he would always ask about what he prayed for. If you had a prayer request, he would come up. That's how you know when someone's praying for you. They know your name, and they remember what it was you asked prayer for. And he would always do that, Lou would. So I've been praying about this certain thing. How's that going? You see, pray the Lord of the harvest. There's bookmarks. It's easy. We can do better, can't we? And um, so maybe the Lord had, uh, uh, I, I, I think I needed the message today. I think that we'll improve on Hebrews 2, two weeks from today better than we would have done it today, next week's men's retreat. Will you stand with me? Let's bow our heads and let's ask God to to give us a willingness to engage with the gospel using Christ as our model. With our heads bowed, let me just remind you, nobody's partying in hell. People in hell are longing for relief. It's our job to share Christ with them so they don't end up there. I wonder if you have a a particular person on your mind or heart right now. Would you ask God to show you how to go about intersecting with that person for the exact intentional purpose of sharing Christ with them? Steak on the deck, take them to lunch shovel their snow. Hopefully there's not any more of that this year. You better figure something else out. Be, re- be praying and be ready and be reaching out. So Father, it seems like I need to begin by just asking forgiveness that we as a church have in many ways become lethargic and lazy We do love your word. We love you. We want to be effective communicators of the gospel. We want to stand with our missionaries. We want to help meet their needs. We want to be willing to go ourselves. We want to be willing to let our children go. So show us how to do all this. We have a dark and complicated world. We have a world that that cannot stand the truth of the gospel. So give us the courage and the ability and the insight to know how to approach this But give us a boldness and a courage that we would indeed be more than a fisherman's club, but we would be fishermen. In Jesus' name I ask this, amen.